when we're trying to think about what film to do next, many in the psychiatric survivor communities say, you've got to make a film on the person who's in nine years of protracted withdrawal. Yes, they're off all of their psychiatric meds, but they're experiencing such neurological injury that they cannot do anything. What about telling their story, Lynn? Your film was so hopeful. Your, all your subjects seem to be getting better. What about those of us who are not doing well? And it's a really legitimate point. There are many, many people who are not doing well. It would be very difficult to make a film about them because it would be a film that does not have hope at all. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's a positive thing to do for our society, to put a film out there that's so full of hopelessness. In case you haven't noticed, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're building a one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network. So I watched your film, Medicating Normal. I just finished it because I've been traveling. And I think I mentioned last time we're doing this, my daughter had COVID, I had COVID. And so I just like, there hasn't been a lot of opportunity, but I started last night and I finished it this morning. So it's pretty emotional watching it and knowing that I was going to have this opportunity to talk to you. I'm fascinated by these people that you followed and these conversations you must have had. Like, I'm fascinated that I get to talk to someone like you because of, say, a podcast. So I can only imagine the types of conversations you've had in making this documentary and like after making the documentary, like what that has led to having these conversations. It's just fascinating to me. And like, what's that been like for you of the doors that that's opened up and not in necessarily business ventures, but more in just amazing conversations and amazing people? You are absolutely spot on. And it's one of the most interesting questions I've gotten thus far about the film. You know, the film started from a very personal encounter with a loved one who was going through some of this. And you can ask me that question later, but what it led to when I finally realized this is a realm I know nothing about, except for the fact that I care deeply about my loved one and I want to help relieve her suffering and I cannot figure out why she's on 10 medications, what they're for, what they're doing. Do they actually treat the diagnosis, what the diagnosis meant? That led me to start reading and educating myself about a world that I knew nothing about, the mental health world. And I met in the process with my filmmaking partner, Wendy, I met 200 people in the research phase of the film, all incredible people, all could have been in the film. Many, many of the conversations were eerily similar in that they all the medications might have been different. The initial reason that they sought psychiatric care might have been slightly different. But most described, uh, you know, really wanting help with something they were struggling with. Being in our society where we have this one pill fixes all scenario, they all talked about their experience trusting a doctor, getting into medication, but that medication then leading to yet another one and then another one and another one, and really feeling honestly that something wasn't right. And the doctor not believing them or their family not believing them and their conditions worsening. So 
the conversations with so many people who could have been in the film. It was remarkable. And we chose our five subjects, not because their stories were any more real than the many that we had had. It's just because we really felt, oh my gosh, this story needs to be told by someone who can weave a story, can tell details that matter, credibility. Anyway, so many wonderful conversations. And since the film's been made too. Yeah, I imagine so. I'm watching it and I'm thinking about our conversation today and like there's so many different directions that we can go with this. Like mental health has always been something, right? It's always been a thing that's out there, but like COVID, during COVID, post-COVID, it's becoming normalized. I'm not going to go as far as to say it is normalized yet. And when you say normalized, what does that mean? Good question. We're like, it's okay to talk about it. And I get it. Like in Medicating Normal, in your documentary, we're getting into very extreme situations that people have dealt with, right? But I think people are going through stuff in life that maybe not hit that extreme, right? Or they're at an early part or an early stage of something that they're dealing with. And Where does that go from there? I'll say this. Your film talks a lot about like uncomfortable means abnormal. Like pain is not accepted and we have to treat it now. Like you said, one pill, what's the answer? So you hear about this, whether it's regarding prescription drugs that you're talking about or anything else, like we have to fix the problem, the symptom, like immediately. And how do we do that? And what's the quickest way to fix that symptom? And it's like, that's kind of where the documentary starts, right? And anyway, I think that's right. I think there's a lot to be said. And I'm struggling with my words here now because it's so complex. And I think it's not simple. And I think and a lot of times I'm like, well, I struggle with my words, but I'm like, I think that's okay because it's not simple. I think this is very complex and it doesn't just take 10 minutes in the doctor's office for them to say, go to sleep, right? You should just sleep. You're young. You should just sleep or take this medication and you'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you were talking too about when I asked the question about mental health post-pandemic is becoming more, the discussions are becoming more normalized. I think that's a good thing. I think people in our society need to talk about their struggles and need to be accepted because they're universal is really. And we were in an era where people felt it was somehow a weakness to be talking about struggles when we always had these struggles. Everybody has always had them. It's just that now we've created a society and I would add in, I thought this was going to be a sports related interview and I'm not a sports person, Eric, but I fully appreciate how much pressure athletes are under, how much pressure to succeed. We look to them as our heroes. And if anything has changed, really, it's the pressure for an athlete to be totally perfect and succeed and not have any problems. So I salute all of these athletes. Michael Phelps and the Simone Biles, all these athletes for talking publicly about their issues because I think they're heroes. Because I think so many people have them who aren't talking about them. But that said, the medicalization of this issue and the calling it mental illness as if there's some kind of a disease is what I feel we need to really pause and think about when you look at how many people are medicated, how many people are diagnosed. Is it really true that one in five Americans is a mentally ill person? I don't think so. I think we're in a society where very sensitive people are being crushed by the pressure and stress. So I don't know whether that answered your question, but... It does. Well, (laughs) that's the thing. Like 
going to that complexity. I don't think there's just like these easy answers to it. I think it's these discussions. I think it's a necessity to watch your documentary or a documentary like yours. I think that's important. And I'm sure that's why you're appearing on podcasts and getting the show out there and on social media and having conversations with people because of all of that. And yeah, and we can absolutely touch on sports like you've already done. And there's so many perspectives with all of it as an entrepreneur, right? There's people I know that are actors, athletes, entertainers, writers, anything. You post something on social media, good luck, right? Like there's a lot that can come back and you don't have to be the starting quarterback for an NFL team or a college football team, right? You could be an individual that wanted to post something and you didn't see what was going to come back to you. And what does that mean? And you're right, like normalizing this is a good thing. So, and I'm saying that in a positive way, and I'm saying that we're getting there. And I think documentaries like this allow for the conversations to be had because I think when you watch those conversations taking place in your film, well, that can then in the family or friends or in the office, that could lead to more conversations. And I would assume that's a lot of what you want. Like you want the doors to be open. You want to create awareness around it. You want the medical field to start like thinking a little bit more, having more discussions about all this. Exactly. Because the film has been called anti-medication by some people. It is not. We are absolutely fully, fully aware that medication plays a very important role in our society. It just, there's something called informed consent about it and about the side effects, the adverse effects, how to get on and off of it. That is just, our general public is not aware of that at all. And so many young kids are going into, I know this because a great friend is a gynecologist who just saw the film recently. And she said, do you know how many first time patients I get young girls who are not just on one medication, most are on more than one. This is 13, 14, 15 year old girls coming in very likely feeling real symptoms of anxiety because of the culture and school system they're in. But why are we medicating 13, 14-year-old girls for anxiety? What's wrong with our culture that we have to rely on medication? And then nobody is talking about the impact of that medication, how that child is going to get off of that medication so that she's not on it for life. No one's talking about that. No, they're not. I think I was on your site and I clicked on Twitter. And so I end up at one of your posts and you're talking about benzodiazepine, right? Yeah. Well, off to the right, it shows what's trending on Twitter right now. And I'm about to talk to you in a few minutes, right? So this is interesting. And Adderall is trending on Twitter. And I click on, I was like, well, that's interesting. Why would Adderall be trending on Twitter? It doesn't make a lot of sense. I look and there's a shortage and people are really freaking out. And they're talking about ADHD. And I don't know. And I'm not a medical professional to understand all these things. I know people that take ADHD medicine and I know that it helps them greatly. And I'm sure there's a lot of medications out there because like you said, this isn't an anti med documentary, like we're on the opposite side of it. If you take medications, you're bad. If you don't, you're good, right? Yeah, that's a non-starter. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It, well, that's just like people have to go to that extreme angle to try yeah. to like just cut the head off of the film and say, don't watch it, right? And that's not at all what it is. Yeah. I just find it fascinating that Adderall was trending on Twitter like five minutes before I'm about to have this conversation with you. And I think there are people that maybe do well with it. So you can answer these questions or speak to them a little bit. If they're not to take medicine, if someone's going through something, like what are they to do? Or where is your stance on all of that as it relates to medicines? Because it is modern day science is amazing and the things that it can do to make someone feel better. But anyway, I think you know what I'm getting at. Where do you take that? Well, and I think with the case with Adderall, it's really interesting. You saw trending on Twitter. I talked to a 
big time psychiatrist. I'm not going to mention his name, but sure. he just told me yesterday that a young man had come to him with parents. He'd been on Adderall. Adderall caused intense anxiety. They put him on tramadol or, or an antipsychotic. Didn't like what that did to him. And he just told the family, I cannot get you off of the antipsychotic until you get off of the stimulant, the mm. Adderall, because the Adderall is causing your anxiety. So these are just two drugs. And so the equation and trying to figure out what's happening is relatively simple. But you can just see the problem. A child is on something Adderall that maybe helps in the short run. I think there are studies that the stimulant meds can help in the very short term. But the big question out there is, do they help in the long run? Do they help with deeper creative thinking? Do they actually help raise grades in school? I don't know. I mean, if I were a parent, I would be less worried about grades being raised than the long-term confidence of my child and the ability of my child to figure out how their brain works and to use it. I don't know. Yeah. But there are many people for whom Adderall does not give anxiety, I'm sure. But the important thing is that before they start a drug like that, have they exhausted all other means? Do they understand that a good night's sleep or a diet that's less focused yeah. on sugar? Uh, there are so many, <clears throat> sure. so many alternatives that can help first avoid the Adderall that should be explored. And then secondly, if you are going to go to that Adderall, just be aware, aware of things like anxiety, aware of how difficult it might be to get off of that drug. Yeah. You don't know, let's like you said, like to raise grades, that seems, I know a grade could be out there three months or six months or a year from now as far as what your final grade is going to be. But in the big scheme of things, what we're talking about here, that is a very short term. I want my grade to be higher. So I need to take this drug to fix that. That's a very short term outlook that is not playing the long game at all. You mentioned it because you talked about diet. And I was just thinking about that because you'll see, okay, before someone goes to bed, they have all this sugar. Yeah. Whether it's candy or something else, a bowl of cereal that's filled with sugar. And again, I'm not trying to prescribe someone like stop eating sugar and you'll be fine. I have no idea. And you also don't know the impact that that drug will have. And it's like you're saying, like have awareness around what are the possibilities of what this could mean. And maybe that's an interesting thing because now more than ever, we have access to probably too much information when it comes to diagnosing oneself with whatever and learning about medicine. But at the same time, people are talking to their doctor. They're trusting that individual to give them good information. They go home and say, well, they said I could take it. They take it and they didn't know what the possibility of the outcome was going to be because possibly they weren't even in a position to think through it that much because of the mental state that they were in, right? I don't know if I'm saying that right or you know, not using words correctly, but that's a lot to think about. There's two sides of it, right? Like you have the information to go read about it, but who's going to read about it, right? Because you're so trusting of this one individual, this doctor that's telling you to take the drug, right? Yeah. And these doctors, because of how our economic medical system is set up, they don't have a lot of time with their patients. Yeah. And so to expect them to be going in and reading all these long-term studies on stimulants, it's a lot to expect from a doctor who's, I mean, I would do it if I was a doctor. I would read as many studies I could. And on studies, I would do my job and read the studies that are critical at the same time yeah. I read the studies that are positive. That's what science is, really. It's to disprove what you think is the right thing. Yeah. Anyway, I think you're right. I think it's really hard for doctors in a 15-minute visit 
to really understand what's going on. So therefore, the whole notion of informed consent is very difficult to require. Yeah, it would take a lot more than 15 minutes to truly understand that and to sit and have a question answer and just dialogue about what journey you're about to go on with this medication. Yeah. Like that's a long time you would need. Yeah. I wanted to tell you about an integrative psychiatrist that I met who went to medical school in Detroit. I think it was Wayne State. She said she was the only psychiatrist in her year. Now, this is different because she was probably educated 15 or she finished medical school 15 or 20 years ago, but she was the only one who took a course on nutrition. This whole notion that we're so siloed, our specialty doesn't drift into other specialties. And she was the only one who took a course on nutrition. Of course, she the way her practice went is she started to be more integrative, more holistic in her approach. Yes, she did prescribe psychiatric meds, but she always did it from a point of view of, all right, is this person, my patient, doing everything they can? Is there anything else that might be causing their anxiety, their restlessness, their lack of sleep? Anyway, fast forward, she left Detroit and went up to the upper peninsula of Michigan where she inherited in a new practice up there, it's not a high socioeconomic level, inherited 75 patients, young people, she's a pediatric psychiatrist, who were being given antipsychotics to sleep at night. And their parents, all blue-collar workers, exhausted, were saying, you know, these kids, we can't get our kids to sleep at night. And then they're exhausted the next day, and the school calls us with behavior problems. So my friend, the integrated psychiatrist said, okay, everybody, she went on a campaign. She went to the dollar store in her town and realized that they offer this magnesium bubble bath or something, a bubble bath with magnesium in it. Magnesium has amazing calming properties. She started to get these 75 kids off of antipsychotics, just simply telling the parents. And I know this seems super simplistic and there's more complexity to the story, but She's getting these kids up there off on a simple bubble bath filled with magnesium to calm them down so they can sleep so they're better behaved in school. Right. I mean, that's just a common sense thing to do. Now, maybe the fifth, sixth, and seventh kid in her group needs an antipsychotic, but not 75. Right. Not 75. Yeah. I'd love for you to interview her. Yeah, I would love to. It's what we talked about before when someone has something wrong with them, they you know, put that in quotes, that they are immediately given like the quickest thing to recovery as far as what they thought, as far as what the medical professional thought. And of course, you're like, when you're in pain, if I have a headache and it's not going away and I have a meeting or I have this or I'm going to be out with my kids, I might need something for that, right? So I want Advil because that's going to help me in that time. That's very basic. But so often it's like, well, if someone's in this state, they need something quick and fast because it's affecting everything in their life. And I'm glad you're bringing up nutrition. I have three kids. My wife and two daughters all have celiac disease. It took her seven years to get diagnosed. Wow. Because every doctor, nothing's wrong with you. You're fine. You have IBS. You have this. You have that. My other daughter had an iron deficiency. So the symptoms are over 300 symptoms that we know about. Maybe. I mean, 300 symptoms is a lot. Yeah. Well, you don't have the signs of IBS because your stomach's this. You know, So they're going to the basic ones. Well, it turned out she had an iron deficiency. And she wouldn't be diagnosed probably today if it wasn't for my wife figuring out that like, I think she has IBS. My other daughter was getting cold. She was getting, well, you're just sick. Like you have to do this. You have, you know, you take this medicine. It wasn't, it wasn't cold. Her symptoms were showing up as colds because it was our third cold in a row. Like something's wrong. I think she's got 
a gluten intolerance, or I think she's got celiac and she gets tested and she went to the doctor and she said, will you test her for this? Wow. And after some time, they finally tested it. And so often in all that process, especially with my wife, it was like, there was no answer. No one asked the questions. And like they almost like kicked her out of the practice because it was like, there's nothing we can do for you here. And no one was getting to the point. And so often it like, there's just so much more to it. And then going into the nutrition thing, okay, so what does that mean? Well, you have to eat certain foods and you feel better. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's simplistic in many ways and exercise and rest and therapy and taking a walk and doing all of these things. Again, I talked to an individual this past weekend who was an army ranger and he was telling me some of the things that he had been through and what he deals with on 4th of July or when a door slams behind him. I mean, that's real. And I couldn't possibly understand what it would be like to live that life and what he'd gone through. So clearly there's a need for medicine and different types of therapy. Eric, what we're doing to our veterans who do have trauma, they have real trauma coming back and they are told instead that they're mentally ill and they're put on, most of them, it turns into a cocktail of medication. And the VA has even come out with guidelines saying that benzodiazepines, which were primarily given for anxiety, are absolutely the wrong thing to give for PTSD. Anyway, the veterans are hugely overmedicated. Yeah. So they have real re-entry issues. And of course, they're what made them heroes out in the war field, they need help adapting, they need jobs, they need support. I even think that in some cases they need disability, but do they need to be stuffed with medications to the extent that they are and rendered dysfunctional? Yeah. I mean, I'm generalizing, but there's a big section in the film that involves veterans and the issues they face. Absolutely. And I think that's a necessary thing to watch. We talk about people transitioning, like you say, coming back from overseas, coming back from war. Athletes, a lot of athletes we've talked to, when they finish playing, whether it's by choice or typically it's not by choice. They got hurt. They weren't good anymore. Something changed, right? They got cut from the team. They stopped playing, whether it was high school, college, professional. All of a sudden, they're not playing anymore. And they're running out of that tunnel being on the court, whatever that feeling they had was being a part of the team, traveling with the team, it's gone like overnight. And I've been told by like most athletes, or if they hadn't said it and we brought it up, they would talk about it to say your cool factor runs out real quick when you're not playing anymore. So all those meetings and all those things that you get to do and all those people that were excited to see you, they don't know who you are anymore. Yeah, And that affects them to a level that you can't understand. Like I remember transitioning out of college and being like, can I go back to college? Like that was easy. That was fun. (laughs) And you deal with that or you deal with a kid moving out of the house or you deal with having a child in the house, right? A, a newborn. Yeah. And there's all these transitions we go through in life, but athletes even deal with it because you mentioned sports earlier. And they're also dealing with like, let's say a football player, a basketball player. They're dealing with a lot of pain, a lot of pain management, like serious pain management. And so you have all those medications that go on top of medications and they all talk about it. And they're all talking about the, maybe their career didn't go the way they wanted it to go. So they have frustrations and anxiety and sadness related to that. And you know, I know some of them who they communicate with one another, they stay in touch with one another, and they talk about it and they deal with that pain. The psychiatrist, I believe he was from Duke, he talked about normal sadness and normal anxiety. Like It's okay to have those things and to deal with them as opposed to just jumping to that next thing. It's unrelated, but it is related when my wife shows up to the doctor and like, well, here's a pill for IBS. Like, here's the magic bullet. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And your wife, wow, she's amazing that she kept at that. 
And it reminds me of one of the subjects in our film, Rebecca, whose parents, Todd and Tabita, had the same sort of tenacious approach to their daughter, who was basically made psychotic by an antidepressant. And she was put into seven hospitals in one year. And the parents yeah. started educating themselves and they acted a lot like your wife. They went and they just said, this is not our daughter. Something has changed her. So I really think that when people say, what do you want people to take away from this film? I want people to be like your wife. I want them to have self-advocacy and the ability to read on their own everything about what's going on what they could possibly do out there and know about it. Like be educated before you go to the doctor because it's going to help the doctor like it did in in your daughter's case. It does. Yeah. It's concerning because, you know, I mentioned Twitter before. So Twitter is very short snippets, headline reading almost in a way. And you could get detailed. And there's a lot of good on Twitter and there's a lot of like toxic behavior on Twitter, obviously. And that's anything. And it's frustrating because to watch your documentary, I think it was like maybe an hour or 15 minutes or so. That's, hour and 15 minutes. Like I can't watch Breaking Bad for that hour and 15 minutes, right? (laughs) But I'm saying, no, my point is I enjoy that. Like, but that's how an individual might think. Like you have a choice to make. Do I read this or do I read that? Do I watch this or I watch that? And again, I'm not judging society. It's really not because, okay, that individual is not going to watch it. So then I rely on the medical professional or someone else to know and to give me proper information because then you get into the overprescription. Like clearly there's a lot of money being made by a lot of people when they sell the drug to you, right? At the end of the day, it's like, but I can't just assume that all drugs are bad, right? To your point of like, this isn't like an anti-medicine documentary. It's not. There's just a lot in all of that, right? Because some people are fascinated by these stories and learning about minimalism and learning about all this and what's going on overseas and what's going on with the drug cartels. Like those are fabulous documentaries to watch, but you have to have an interest in it. You have to have an interest in reading, you know, a 3000 word article that is just very complex, right? That takes time. And that's not going to be like you said, the general public is probably not going to do it. And we don't have to judge people for that. We just have to understand that that's not going to take place. So how do we educate people? And it's like starts at the top, I think, to like, figure that out. But how could we possibly trust the system to do that? I don't know. Yeah, you know, we so want to get the film in front of young medical school residents because I think that there's a greater chance that the young people will look at it and absorb some of it than older doctors who've been sort of ingrained in the system. But I have to say, there are doctors out there who I feel are, and many of them are in our film, who have been able to be humble, curious, and they have had the great strength of character of saying, wait a minute, I think I'm harming my patient. Mm. Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford saw that prescribing some of the drugs she was prescribing was actually harming her patients. And she's spoken out about it. And I think she's going to be okay. And I think that that is, there's nothing wrong with the doctor admitting that they've been wrong, but we live in such a litigious society that I think that's just scary for many doctors. Yeah. People don't want to be wrong. Like we could have a conversation about, it could be, you mentioned sports before. I mean, the tribalism that exists, if my team and your team and we have an argument, there's no conversation to be had there a lot of times. I mean, you see the videos online of people getting fights in a stadium over a team that has nothing to, they could care less about you, right? Like they're making yeah. money. They're, 
it's wild. So when you take it to that level, when it's something I've studied for 30 years and I'm a doctor and I'm this, I'm that, you can't tell yeah. me I'm wrong. I might be so far gone in my conclusion on this that there's no turning back. Yeah. Jordan Peterson, maybe you're familiar with him. Yeah. Okay. So I know there's a lot of takes on his stance. And anyway, his books are amazing. His content's great. And I understand there's a lot of political sides to him. He had gotten sick, very sick. And yeah. I believe he was on benzodiazepine, if I'm not mistaken, yes. and maybe a cocktail yeah. of drugs. So much for, I think they were like overseas trying to get help, trying to get off this medicine. Well, so here's a clinical psychologist, a professor, someone who's like helping people. He got on this, right? And he talks about his own depression, but he knows about it. Like he knows more than most, right? There's always like, a, like you know more than most. He knows more than most, like the top 1%. Like most people don't understand this stuff to the level that you all would understand it. Here's someone who's a professional in this and he was on it because, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you know of it. We know about it uh, very much. And yes, it was benzodiazepines. And yes, he speaks very eloquently about uh, depression and he's written about it too. But I think that this whole experience has woken him up to, well, at least benzodiazepines because they ended up going to Russia and I forget where else. But yeah, I think that he will be a wiser person for the experience he's been through. And I think of this wonderful place, Inner Fire, up in Vermont, that is sort of a respite for people wanting to find guidance to come off medications. Because if there's one thing, the medical community, the biggest thing, if you were going to ask me, that's missing from the conversation entailing informed consent is the notion of withdrawal. And the fact that the meds cannot just be cut in half, or you cannot just take it one day and then not the next, especially with benzodiazepines. It's a hyperbolic tapering that you saw in the film, Dave is showing his wife, where the smaller amounts, actually, you need to go even slower if you're on a smaller amount. And so this place, Inner Fire in Vermont, run by Beatrice Birch, she was telling me that a huge group of people interested in going there are a doctor's struggling with suicide group. So when you say Jordan Peterson and doctors, I think there are many, many doctors who are suffering. They're taking the drugs they've been prescribing and they're not doing well long-term and they're facing suicidality. The stress on them is so great. So yeah, Jordan Peterson is just one, but there are many. Yeah, yeah. And he's out there and talking about it, like you said. So to live through yeah. that experience now, maybe he can help people out in other ways. I had two conversations I can think of. One was an individual who was an alcoholic and he talks about how going through the 12-step program, he needed that. Like he wouldn't be the person he is today without going through that experience, right? Yeah. I talked yeah. to another individual who went through a lot of struggles and he wasn't through addiction, but he had certain things that he was doing, let's say, and he didn't need to go through it. Because he knew he had the mentors in place, which he did because he was an athlete. He was a college football player at a very large university. He had the people there. So he's like, I didn't need to go through that because I just wouldn't listen. Yeah. And so he sees it from the other side of it. And I think obviously, you know, the individuals that you showed like long term, maybe hopefully they'll continue to be the amazing people that they are and continue to get better. But I know... <laughs> It would be way better if they never had to go through that in the first place. Like, it still might work out for them in the long run. Yeah. But no one should have to suffer the way they've suffered. Like, hearing those stories about showing up at a school and what that woman was thinking, or like 
when she found out about one of her soldiers that had died in battle and she heard the story and she couldn't even process it because she wasn't feeling anything. Like people shouldn't have to suffer through that. So it'd be much better if they didn't have to live through that experience and they could just like, I'm not saying they're just going to watch your documentary and they'll be all fine. No, it takes so much more than that, but that's a piece of it, right? To like, don't even get to that point because there's so many people who don't come off of that. And it's sad. Yeah. Well, there's so much to what you just said that I'm so interested in. Well, the AA, I think AA programs are incredible and what they've done. I'm in awe, even though I don't have trouble with alcohol, I want to join one just for the friendships and the admiration I have for the group of people supporting one another. But I have heard people in psychiatric drug withdrawal say, AA would never work for me because I am suffering a physiological withdrawal. I am in a agonizing state where, yes, I need support from my fellow human beings, and maybe AA would have been good before I went on any drugs. But the state of withdrawal can be so debilitating that the AA, it would never work. Yeah. That person is lying down in their room with the shades closed, unable to go to work, and If you go onto the internet, you can find support groups filled with people like this. In fact, when we're trying to think about what film to do next, many in the psychiatric survivor communities say, you've got to make a film on the person who's in nine years of protracted withdrawal. Yes, they're off all of their psychiatric meds, but they're experiencing such neurological injury that they cannot do anything. What about telling their story, Lynn? Your film was so hopeful. You're All your subjects seem to be getting better. What about those of us who are not doing well? And it's a really legitimate point. There are many, many people who are not doing well. It would be very difficult to make a film about them because it would be a film that does not have hope at all. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's a positive thing to do for our society, to put a film out there that's so full of hopelessness. Yeah. It's a reality. Yeah. When you talk about it, that's where this exists so you can have conversations so the film doesn't just end, like the dialogue can continue. You know, I'm thinking we can watch a film, we can watch a show, we can listen to a podcast and it could impact us. It can inspire us, it can motivate us, it can make us sad, it can make us think and make us feel. I mean, I'm watching some of those, you know, when she's sitting in the cemetery, it's heartbreaking, right? There's so many moments in there where the parents, like you said, talking about their daughter and how she's like, I don't want to like sound like, I've saved her life, but like, I think that saved her life. Yeah. And that's okay to say, but you hear these things and you hear stories, right? Nowadays, I've talked to many mental health professionals. How are we supposed to hear the news on social media or on the news where I hear all this bad stuff going on and it's happening 3,000 miles away and it's constant? You have access to this information right now. Anyway, my question is you're having all these conversations like we talked about at the beginning and you're putting this piece together, this documentary together, it has to have, and I know it does because I can just hear the way you talk about it, it has impact on you and your team and everyone that's associated with this. How do you manage yourself during it and after it? Because this isn't just some like thing you just, you know, set out to do and talk about, right? And move on to the next thing. I mean, this is a part of who you are now and you're hearing these stories. So how do you deal with it all? Yeah, it's so humbling. And you realize, well, one's first feeling is we've got to make another film. We need to get this word out even more and more and more. But because it's been so meaningful and because 
as you say, the challenge is how many people are actually going to watch the film. I mean, we've been doing really well on Amazon. In September, I think we made $10,000 on Amazon. So people are watching it, I think, for whom the issue touches. But my first inclination is we've got to make another film. It's got to be about a different angle. Maybe we focus on ADHD, maybe on athletes. But then my second feeling is, and this is where it comes in, is that we need to do justice to this film. And so we're trying to do outreach. We've put a great deal of emphasis on the outreach of our film, which means having community screenings, which means asking experts and panelists from a given area join the panel and inviting community members to watch the film and then talk about it after. Because watching it on Amazon is great and it will give you maybe a launching to try to self-educate yourself. But having a film screening and then a discussion of people who have different perspectives in the audience is a very enriching experience. So we have a community screening coming up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and we are very excited about it because we have panelists. It's going to be at the Sandler Center in January. Anyway, I think you're asking me, it's impacted me hugely, hugely. I have a world exists that I knew nothing about. And I think many people who don't have contact with the world of mental health don't know about this issue. They don't know at all. Yeah. So for me, it's had a profound impact. Is there coping involved? Because I think one of the things that you're doing is you're just putting in the work, right? Like you're not stopping. You know, you hear that a lot. Like when something's going on in your life, well, just get to work, right? Work through it. Again, that's a coping mechanism, perhaps. Do you have to deal with that because you're hearing such intimate stories and we get to see it on the screen, but you get to see it in real life and you're having even more conversations. Do you have that? Is it like, do you have to see someone? Do you go on long walks? Like, how do you manage this all? Because you understand what all is at stake, not only for yourself, but everyone around you. I mean, this is a lot, right? This is a lot. Any entrepreneur, filmmaker, I mean, this is a venture that you're going down and you don't necessarily know the end result of it. And you have a life to live as well, right? Like, Yeah, no, I go on long walks. I started to eat much better. I feel sleep is so important. It's impacted how I feel personally about my health. I have to say, and one of the things is that I, I don't trust doctors as much, which is sad, but I just feel before going to a doctor, you need to figure out on your own if there's anything that you're doing that's impacting you and try to fix it before you go to the doctor. Yeah. But yes, long walks and also letting it all unfold. I think like if I were to push my opinion on someone who has a different experience, for instance, someone who feels like they're doing really well on medication, in the beginning when we were doing research and making this and finding all this out about the incredible corruption that goes on in trials too, feeling like the whole thing is Wizard of Oz and our public is being misled. I was so angry about that and so angry that if I encountered a poor soul who actually likes their medication and doesn't want to have to deal with my whole thing, it used to get me very upset that I couldn't convince that person. But now I don't feel that. I think it's really important to listen and let people have their own reality. You can say, this is what I've learned, and this is the film, and if you want to watch it, here it is. But you can't push people to believe something that they're not ready to believe. Yeah. And I think the same is true for the film, and they'll come around. I have faith that people will, if they just hear something and you don't try to push it on them, maybe they'll 
look into it. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I watched it on Apple TV. You said you can watch it on Amazon. There's other ways, like you said, it's airing on PBS, I believe. There's going to be screenings maybe, and maybe someone can help who's listening to this have a screening somewhere else. So where can they learn more about the documentary? Where do they find it? Where can they watch it? Our website is basically the name of the film. It's called medicatingnormal.com. And the website contains lots of resources. It contains PBS scheduling, like where it has been aired and where it will be aired. It contains information about upcoming community screenings and also about how to reach us, because that is very true. If anyone listening to this feels a great need that the church in their area or the high school in their area needs to have a screening, we are fully ready and able to do that. Or a library, lots of libraries, they give you free space to show the film. Yeah. So we want to encourage that. So it's medicatingnormal.com. Reach out to us on email. Our email is medicatingnormal at gmail.com. And our outreach team will get back to you immediately. Yeah. Lynn, thank you. It brought the film to me so I could watch it. And I will have other people watch it. And I hope people listening will have the links in the show notes to be able to watch it and to listen to this and to just think about it, have conversations about it, learn more about it, whether it's this or something else, you know, that just gets you to think a little bit because it's not always what it seems. But it's been an honor and a privilege to be able to chat with you. I'm just always fascinated by what people are creating, what projects they're working on. And it's not always in the thing that we, you know, like, oh, get this job and you work on this thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when I get to come across people like yourself that are, you're really creating something that is having real impact. And it's a privilege to have a conversation with the person behind it. I really value that. So thank you. Oh, well, you're doing the same thing, getting these conversations going. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's something to be able to just like to know that that will lead to a conversation with you, Lynn. So thank yeah. you. Thank you for your time and everything. Oh, Eric, thank you so much. In case you haven't noticed, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're building a one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network.